0: Well, good morning. Hey. So, I'm going to have to get used to this a little bit. Uh, y'all back here, the cheering section right here. Uh, but uh, I, I do like this. Now, those of you that were part of Wednesday night worship, it was really, it, as Brandon said, a really sweet time. And uh, actually, I think it's one of the most, uh, one of my favorite things we've done as a church in a really long time. So, if you're around this next Wednesday night, uh, six o'clock, we'll be back here. Um, But we're going to do what we do. We uh, worship God and open God's word with the expectation that his word will shape and form us and send us into the week. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Genesis 37. If you need a Bible, we have some people that will walk around and just slip up a hand and they'll get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. And I'm going to try to make my way through a very significant story. It's actually one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. Uh, It's the story of Joseph. Uh, a familiar story, but um, really l- looking at the overarching thread, the narrative of his life and, uh, and how God worked through his life to accomplish God's purposes through his life. And so we're going to take kind of a broad stroke approach to Joseph this morning and then over the next couple of weeks we'll dive in deeper into some of the different chapters of Joseph's life. Um, That song we sang at the end, or that song right before, that the the blood of Christ, that it's rewriting my history. I mean, listen to the words that you just sang. It's rewriting my history. It covers me with destiny. It's making all things right. The precious blood of Christ speaks a better word. One of the most important, the most important thing I can do as your pastor is to just keep you pointing keep pointing you to God through Jesus Christ. Just keep looking at him. Keep looking at him. Keep running to him. But I think the, the next most important thing that I can do is to help you begin to reframe your life through the lens of his kingdom. The reality is, is that I can't change any of your pasts. Your past is your past. What happened to you for better or for what worse? The good and the bad. The celebrations and the tragedies. That's your past. It is your reality. The question is, who is interpreting this, what that past means for you? Whose voice are you listening to? Who's writing your story, so to speak? And what we see in Joseph is is a man who's brought from this boy with a dream that God plants in his heart, who goes through some absolute trauma and trial and tragedy to ultimately be formed into the kind of person who has the character and capacity to carry the calling of God on his life. And we can see that the hand of God was at work in all of it. In every moment. I mean, just this week, as a church family, we have seen the two extremes. I would ask that you join uh, with us in praying for the McKinnon family. If you know Kyle, um, she runs our, she's our children's pastor. And many of you know her, for, she works with your kids. But her husband Joseph lost his mom and his dad uh, both this week. Um, and we are grieving with them. And we ask that you pray for them. Uh, His mom's funeral was supposed to be Saturday and ended up having to be postponed because his dad had to be rushed to the ER on Friday and passed away. Um, So it's a heartbreaking, tragic story. And so we are praying for them, ask you to pray for them. At the same time, on Saturday night, we celebrate that, uh, I don't see them in the room, but Megan and Joseph got engaged. So do we see, uh, is Megan here? She's normally right out front, or Joseph. Now, I'm sure they're doing important things. But, and so, in one week, I'm on the phone as, talking through a funeral, and then the next phone call is to a couple uh, the Gregory's checking on the brand new little baby boy that they have. We, we live in this world where we experience pain and celebration in one fell swoop, almost with one breath, right? But you're also bombarded by this message. This idea that the highest goal of your life is to be comfortable. And that in fact, if you are experiencing pain or discomfort or pressure or struggle or loneliness or anxiety or sadness, that there's something wrong with you that needs to get fixed. That there's something that is broken. And if it's not broken with you, there's something wrong with God that you would go through struggles and trials and pain and problems. But what we find in the Bible over and over again is this testimony that the world that we live in is a world with pressure and pain and trials and tragedies alongside of celebration and joy and delight and love and grace and loss All together, The question is, who are we listening to and will we be faithful to the God that carries us through it all? And maybe... The pain that we experience isn't because there's something wrong with us, but maybe it's God shaping and forming us to have the kind of character and capacity that can carry the calling of God that is on your life. Romans 5 tells it clearly that we rejoice in our trials when we are pressed because it is in that pressure that, we produ- that God produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope, and that hope does not disappoint. I can't rewrite your history in regards to what has happened to you, but maybe what God can do is begin to reframe your understanding of your life to see that his hand has been at work in the best of times and in the worst of times, and that through it all, he will carry out his plans, and his purposes for you and for this world. And so as we look at the, at the story of Joseph, I hope that you're able to find your story in his story. When I mean, we say the, word, the Scriptures, the Word is living and active. It's live. And so we'll start here in Genesis 37 with the story of this young man, Joseph. It begins with his father, Jacob. We looked at Jacob last week and how Jacob had led, I mean how God had led Jacob back to Bethel to this place of encounter with him. as God was forming Jacob and renaming Jacob into Israel to be the man that through his family, the God would carry out his promise to bless the nations. And that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings or journeys, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations. Of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So one of the first things we find out about Joseph is that he is the favored son. Remember, Jacob has uh, two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah, that was a trick from his father-in-law. And then Rachel, his beloved, his favorite wife, who actually is barren for most of their marriage, but Leah begins to have baby boys, uh, and uh, and then Rachel, jealous, gives her maidservant uh, over to um, to Joseph to be, sorry, Jacob to be uh, his third wife. And begins to have sons through her. And then Leah, jealous of Rachel and the maidservant, gives her maidservant over to be his fourth wife, to have sons through him. Finally, after all of these sons are born, uh, Rachel, God has, uh, has mercy and grace on Rachel. And, uh, and she gets pregnant with their first son, their uh, oldest son through Rachel, who is Joseph. They'll end up having one more son, Benjamin, but unfortunately, through, uh, during childbirth with Benjamin, uh, Rachel would die. So, the favored son, Joseph, is the son of his beloved wife who is now, who is now gone. And Jacob has no problem showing this favoritism. And it tells us that uh, even as a young boy, as a 17-year-old young man, that that Joseph uh, is tending the flock with his older brothers. The word there, though, for boy is actually uh, better to to use the word helper, that he's a helper amongst his brothers tending the flocks. And we get a clue a little bit about what uh, Jacob has put on Joseph in this famous coat that joseph wears some of you probably maybe heard of or gone to see the musical the technicolor dream coat right which is kind of a a fun way of saying this coat of many colors the problem is that's not actually the best translation for the hebrew there the literal translation is a a coat of many stripes as in like a patched garment or a patched cloak uh, cloak so you get this idea that it's a coat of many colors it's a fair translation but actually the better translation is a coat with long sleeves a coat with long sleeves, that just doesn't have the same sort of pizzazz as the Technicolor dream coat, I guess. But a coat with long sleeves is significant, because a coat with long sleeve is the coat that would have been worn by a manager or the overseer. You see, if you were a, a farmhand or a worker tending the flocks or out uh, dealing with the crops, you would have worn a garment without sleeves, so your hands could get dirty, you could get in there with the sheep or with the grain or whatever it was. But the overseer, who didn't need to get his hands dirty, had an overgarment with long sleeves. And those long sleeves were significant because this was before the day of briefcases and book bags or laptops, in that you kept your parchments or your scrolls tucked into the sleeves of your long coat. And so the person with a long coat was seen as the overseer, the authority, the manager, not the ones who got his hands dirty. And so at a young age, this coat that his father gives him isn't just a symbol of his favor, it's a symbol of authority. And so we see in Joseph, this call of God on his life is to be a man who carries the favor and the authority of God. The problem is, he's not ready for that yet. The story continues, it's a familiar part, Joseph has a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. His older brothers that should have the favor, should have the authority, are looking at this young upstart who's getting all this from their father, and they don't like it. In fact, they don't like Joseph so much, they can't even speak a kind word to him, the Bible says. Joseph, blissfully unaware of his, father, of his brother's animosity, says to them, hey, listen, hear this dream that I had. Behold, We were binding sheaves of grain in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that cool? His brothers don't like that very much. And they say to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you going to indeed rule over us? So... Surprisingly, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and there's significance in dreams in pairs. It was understood that that pairs of dreams carried divine significance. We'll see that later in the story as well. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father, in fact, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So this first dream that God plants in Joseph's heart is significant. And we recognize that it's a dream from God for Joseph. The problem is, is he doesn't understand it. And neither do his brothers. Joseph sees himself as the center of that dream. How cool is this? Listen, I'm going to rise up over all of you, and you're going to bow down to me. Isn't that awesome? And they're like, heck no. You little runt. We're going to put you in your place, and we'll see how they do that here in just a second. But the dream is from God. He just doesn't understand it yet. And he's not ready yet to step into that dream or that calling on his life. And there's something, it seems like, that Joseph misses. It's easy to focus on the dream, at the bowing down part, right? You know, I'm going to rise up and you're going to kiss the ground at my feet. But noticed, notice the... Uh, the medium that God uses. It's a sheaf of grain. It's wheat. Jesus will later use that same uh, picture, metaphor, to say that unless a grain, a kernel of grain, falls to the ground and dies, it cannot reproduce and be fruitful for more life. That for a grain to actually bear fruit, for a grain to fulfill its purpose, it must first fall and die. And what we find out for Joseph is that before he can fulfill the purpose that God has on his life, there's going to be a death. There's going to be a dying. Continues, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Shechem, if you remember earlier on in Genesis, is actually a place of tragedy for that family. It was at Shechem that, uh, that they were camped as a family, and the, the men of that land violated, one, violated their sister. There was one of the daughter that was also born to this family. And, uh, and so the brothers got together, and they concocted this plan for revenge uh, that basically tricked the men of Shechem and ended up slaughtering the whole village. And so it was a place of violence. It's a place of bloodshed, but it also would be a place of uh, great animosity towards this family, and so they're uh, tending their, their flock. They end up out toward, back towards Shechem. And Israel, who's Jacob, says to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. It makes sense that Jacob would be a little bit concerned having his boys uh, so close to a place that had been such a tragic and painful place in the past. So he sends Joseph to go check on them. Joseph says uh, to him, here I am. Literally, that, the Hebrew there is just two words behold me and the reason i point that out and this doesn't show up so much in, in the english everywhere but it does show up a lot notice how many times through this narrative already that i've read we, that uh, the narrator the storytellers used the word behold or look or low in other words pay attention behold look pay attention there's something going on here that's bigger than what it appears on the surface there's something else here that I don't want you to miss. Pay attention. Behold, look. Now Joseph says, "Look me, volunteering himself for that role." So he said to him, "Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word." So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, "What are you seeking?" I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. It's an interesting little interruption. Because in the Hebrew, the writers of Scripture don't waste a word. Every word, every aside, every passage, every phrase matters. It's there for a purpose. And so it would be just as easy to tell this story that Joseph, assigned by his dad to go check on his brothers, goes towards Shechem, ends up finding them in Dothan and get on with the story. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the story, this random man shows up. Joseph, we see, the word literally there means that not just that he is, he's wandering, he's wandering aimlessly in the fields. He's lost. He doesn't know where his brothers are. He is alone. He's in this dangerous land that has been a place of violence in the past. And in that place, a man shows up that gives him direction of where to go. A God-ordained divine interruption. Now, I point that out because I bet in your life, if you look back on your past, there have been God-ordained divine interruptions at just the right moment, and just the right time, that brought you what you needed when you were alone, that maybe pointed you in the right direction, that kept you going or kept you moving. These random interruptions of this no name a man that just appears out of nowhere, that God actually uses to keep moving Joseph to where God wants him to go. So I encourage you just to pause. Where has God surprisingly shown up in your life? And to have eyes to see, even this week, what are the God-ordained interruptions that God has in store for you if only you have eyes to see them? Now, the other thing I want to point out, though, is where the man points him is to his brothers. It's right information. But the path that Joseph's going to end up taking by following his directions is incredibly painful. And sometimes we think that when God shows up, Where God begins to move us towards that call on our life, that destiny he has for us, that hope or dream that he's planted in our heart. That once he points us in the right direction, it's going to be smooth sailing from there. But this God interruption actually points him down a path that is going to be incredibly painful. And what would happen if this man never showed up? I mean, I assume Joseph would probably wander around in the field until finally he gave up. He'd make his way back to his father's house where he'd be safe and sound, eat a good dinner, and go to bed. And the rest of the story doesn't play out the way that, if you're familiar, we know the rest of this story plays out. But this random man that points him the right way is actually pointing him to a path of pain. And there are some of you Actually, I would argue all of us have walked paths of pain or are walking paths of pain. And again, it is easy to think that if we are in pain, there is something wrong. And that the best thing we can do is find the quickest way out of our pain. And maybe the best thing to do isn't to avoid our pain, but to name our pain. Because it is in naming the pain that we give God the space to show us how his hand is at work, even in it. It's okay. It's okay. He is faithful. And he is good. And it's not in spite of, but maybe precisely because of the difficulties that we walk through that God is able to shape and form us. Again, to have the character and the capacity to carry the calling that he has placed on our lives. So where does this story go? The man points him in the right direction. The brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. The story takes a uh, dark turn real fast. They move from jealousy and being a little upset to, oh, here's a solution, let's just get rid of the dude. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Literally, that that word there is uh, two words in the Hebrew. It is this master of dreams, which actually I love because that is actually Joseph's God-given identity, as we find out later on. Here comes this master of dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits or cisterns. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, who's the oldest the, the oldest brother, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Literally, we shall not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand, restore him to his father. Reuben, actually, just a little uh, while ago, had uh, shamefully disgraced the family by um, by sleeping with his father's concubine. And you uh, and get this sense that Reuben is trying to redeem himself here. He finally steps up in his role as the older brother to protect his younger brother here. And so with force, he says, do not lay a hand on him. Now, plan B is still a little rough here. You know, Throw him into the cistern here. Now, Reuben's plan is to come back and to rescue his brother. But they do what he says, and... Uh, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that robe of many colors or long sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. I, I love the, ca- I mean, I don't love it. It's interesting, the callousness of this. It's like they just take their younger brother, strip him, beat him, throw him into a pit, and they're like, man, I am starving. How about you? Peanut butter or turkey? What do you want? And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, another divine interruption, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother. so nice of you, Judah. I mean, he is our brother. Let's not kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery. And his brothers listened to him. So the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which is the price of a slave. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I... Where shall I go? In other words, I bear this responsibility. What am I supposed to do now? So they come up with an idea. They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Now all his sons and all his daughters rose up to try and comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to the grave to my, my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we see... For Joseph, this dream that gets planted in a young man's heart. And then Joseph carrying out this authority and living under this favor of his father ends up uh, being turned on by his brothers, betrayed and tossed into a pit, left for dead. And actually in that act of throwing him to the pit, we see that this, this cloak that represents the favor and the authority his father has given him, this call on his life that gets actually stripped, ripped away from him, and actually gets used as proof of his death. There had to be a dying. That first dream had to die. And where we leave this story here for now is Joseph, alone and abandoned, sold into slavery, and now heading into a foreign land. Chapter 38 takes a pause on that story and begins to tell what seems like a side story, um, the story of Judah, and it's a crazy story in itself. But it's not actually that random. If you read it, it actually beautifully parallels these other stories. But also, it's this story in chapter 38 of Judah that uh, would bring forth uh, the line of the Messiah later on. That story of Judah and all of the craziness there actually ends up Uh, bringing about the birth of Jesus. But we'll pick it back up, because even though it seems like Joseph, mourned by his father as dead, forgotten by his brothers as lost, has not been forgotten by God. And maybe that's the word you need this morning. If you find yourself in a pit, or you find yourself in a place of struggle or a place of pain, that God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. He is with you in the highs and in the lows, in the pains and the celebration. And so we see Joseph. Now, from Joseph's perspective, I mean, his whole world has been turned upside down. He has lost everything except God. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Why? Because the favor and the authority that God intended Joseph to carry, he carries. Later on in Romans, that the call of God cannot be revoked. And so this matters. The call of God on your life cannot be revoked. Who God made you to be when he knit you together in your mother's womb, when he envisioned every day of your life before one of them came to pass, cannot be changed by the circumstances that you find yourself in. Whether a banker or a plumber, a computer technician, a teacher or a pastor, or maybe all of those over the course of your career regardless of your circumstances who god made you to be and what he has called you to do does not change whether you are going from bankruptcy to being a multimillionaire or maybe the same in the same or both in the same year regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in who you are and what god has called you to do doesn't And so for Joseph, he carries a divine favor and authority from God to bring about God's plans and purposes for his people. And so whether Joseph is in his father's house, tending sheep in a field, or in a pit, or in the household of the Egyptian, the, the keeper of the guard for the Egyptian, for Pharaoh, Joseph is still the man God made him to be. You are not defined by your circumstances. And so the question isn't necessarily, how do, I cha- how do I get out of the pit? How do I change my circumstances? The question is, who is God calling you to be where you are right now? For better or for worse, good or bad, miserable or amazing, who, the, the most important, one of the most important things you can hear from God is who he has made you to be and what he's called you to do. John 10, Jesus says, That I'm the good shepherd, and the sheep know my voice. And I call them by name, identity, who you are, and I lead them forth. Destiny, what he's made you to do. And so Joseph, faithful to God, even now as a servant, as a slave in Potiphar's house, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found, and I circled this word in my Bible, favor in his sight and attended him and made him circle overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. That favor and authority goes with him no matter where he is because that is what God has made him to carry. The question is, is Joseph yet in a place where he has the character and capacity to carry the call of God in his life. Now we'll find that uh, this story, again, derails for poor Joseph. Uh, We'll dive into this in more depth next week, but just the the Cliff Notes version of it is uh, Potiphar has given everything over to Joseph. He doesn't worry about anything except what food he's going to eat. That's why uh, the the rabbis say that they envision Potiphar was an obese, large man, because all he cared about was eating his food. The rest of it he gave to Joseph uh, to cover, to, hang, to, to take care of. And as Joseph is tending this house, this uh, young strapping lad has moved in. And Potiphar's wife begins to, to catch a fancy to, to young Joseph and begins to try to seduce Joseph to sleep with her. Joseph, saying faithful, he actually says, How could I do this against my master? And how could I sin against God? I, I will not do this. In fact, multiple times she keeps trying to seduce him, this woman that has power and influence, and Joseph resists over and over again, uh, until finally she grabs a hold of him, and he runs off, again, stripping that cloak off of him, and then she uses the very cloak of, that was his attempt to try to do the right thing against him. And we see uh, verse 12, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Assuming that she's accusing her husband there that's it's his fault. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Go down to 19. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His hang- anger was kindled. There's a good, a good question there of who was Potiphar actually mad at? Was Mat- Potiphar mad at Joseph for trying to take advantage of his wife, according to his wife's accusation? Or is Potiphar angry at his wife for the accusation that she's making against Joseph. I would actually argue the second, because if this was, if Potiphar actually believed his wife, Joseph should have been killed immediately. To try to assault the wife of his captor or of his master should have been death. Potiphar would have taken him out into the field and had and had him done away. It would have been the end of Joseph's story. But instead, Joseph, I mean, Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison. And that prison actually is still in Potiphar's house. He doesn't even kick him out of the house. He just moves him into the prison part of the house. And then we find out later that when people are talking about Joseph, they never refer to him as Potiphar's prisoner, but instead as Potiphar's servant. So even when he's in chains, even when he's in prison, he lives as a servant. Why? Because the call of God on Joseph's life doesn't change regardless of his circumstances. So so Joseph now finds himself in prison. Again, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And again, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison Whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord made it succeed so even so imagine Joseph's life he gets a glimpse this divine dream that God gives him immediately his family betrays him he's tossed into a pit he's lifted out of the pit and he's thrown into slavery he begins to be elevated even as a slave in his master's household. And then the master's wife turns against him. He's tied into another, tossed into another pit, into prison. And even there, he stays faithful to God because God is staying faithful to him. And the favor and the, and the authority that God intends him to carry, that is shaping him, is carrying him through. And what fe- must feel like to Joseph moving farther and farther away from that glimpse of a dream that God gave him as a teenager. What God is actually doing is moving him one step at a time closer to fulfilling that call on his life. Joseph just can't see it. And maybe that's what we need to hear. Is that at times what may feel like it's moving you farther and farther away from the hopes and dreams God has planted in your heart, the things that he's called you to do, who who he's made you to be, that God is faithful, and maybe we just can't see how he's actually repositioning us, even in the pain, maybe not in spite of, but through the pain, to put us exactly where he needs us and wants us to fulfill the things that he's called for us. Why is that? Because in Potiphar's house, he would have never met the two top officials in Pharaoh's uh, cabinet, the cupbearer and the baker, who somehow displeased Pharaoh and get tossed into prison with Joseph. And so the cupbearer and the and uh, the the baker again. I won't read the story, but just the synopsis. They uh, they're there in prison. Actually, the, the keeper of the prison puts Joseph in charge of them. And for, in chapter forty. Verse five, one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. I want to pause on that because even here we see the growth in Joseph's life. Think back to Joseph's first dream when it was all about him. He seemed completely oblivious to the reactions and what was going on in the people around him. His brothers hated him already. And here he is being like, hey guys, listen to this. I mean, he's unaware of the, the discord that is evident in that house. But here, Joseph at least is becoming aware of those around him. And he wakes up one morning and he looks and he sees that, that, that the countenance of the, these two guys has fallen. And so he asked them, hey, what's going on? Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So dream two no longer is Joseph at the center, but God begins to take a role in recognizing, no, this belongs to God. But still, hey, let's see what I can do. The dreams kind of play out, Uh, where the um, cupbearer tells him his dream. Uh, Joseph tells him, hey, listen, here's what your dream means. In three days, your head is going to be lifted up. In other words, you're going to be exalted back into the position you have at Pharaoh's right hand. You're going to be great. The baker hearing that interpretation is like, man, good news for you. Here, listen to my dream. Joseph says, hey, just like him, your head's going to be lifted up, but this time your head's going to be lopped off. You're going to be hung on a pole and executed and left out for dead. The baker probably doesn't like that one so much. But sure enough, three days later, both dreams uh, come to fulfillment. And as Joseph is telling the cupbearer, who he knows is going to be at Pharaoh's right hand, the interpretation of the dream, Joseph then says, listen, do not forget me. Remember me. You can hear the desperation in his voice. I mean, pit after pit, being tossed into prison, betrayed by his family, betrayed by the wife of his master. Don't forget me. But what happens at the end of 40? Those things are fulfilled, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And after two whole years, the Hebrew wants to make sure that you get it. This isn't just some acronym for a long time. This is two entire years of prison life, where every day is the same, every meal is the same, where you are bound and waking up a prisoner, forgotten and abandoned. And surely now for Joseph, that dream he planted in his heart as a teenager feels farther away than it has ever felt. But we have a third dream. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, The short version of it, the dream, seven cows, seven fat cows are grazing by the river. When seven emaciated lean cows come up out of the river and devour the seven fat cows. It has a second dream. Remember, two dreams at one time has divine significance. There's a head of grain with seven stalks on it. Uh, healthy, thriving stalks, and then seven emaciated, weak stalks come up, and that grain is devoured. Joseph, being told the to dream, tells Pharaoh, uh, the sorry, Pharaoh wakes up from that dream absolutely in panic. He knows it's from God. He knows it's significant, but he doesn't understand it. So he's calling all of his advisors, all of his counsel. No one can tell him what it means, but he's deeply disturbed And it's at that moment that finally the cupbearer remembers Joseph and all of the things that God had positioned and done in the pain and in the trials is is culminating in this moment when the cupbearer says to Pharaoh, oh, that's right. Remember that little thing that happened two years ago when you were so mad and threw me in prison with the baker? Glad we worked that out. We're still cool, right? And, uh, but there was this guy that was in there, he was a Hebrew servant, this is actually where he refers to Joseph as, the, as Potiphar's servant, not as a prisoner. But there was a servant in there with me, and uh, we had these crazy dreams, and he told us what they meant, and sure enough, three days later, uh, both of his interpretations came out exactly as he said. So Pharaoh says to him, go grab the guy. And so Joseph, who for two years, left and abandoned, betrayed by his family, Finally, gets a call. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now listen to this. Dream one, Joseph is at the center of the story. Dream two, Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me. Now listen to dream three. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That for jo- Joseph to have the character and the capacity to carry the call of God on his life, he would have to be brought to a place that he could let go completely of himself. And it all became about God. It's not in me. I can't do it. I have nothing to offer. Anything I have is from God. Joseph had to completely die to himself through the pit and the prison, through the trials and the betrayals to come to a place where he recognized this is all God. And if anything happens here, it is him. It had nothing to do with me. So sure enough, Pharaoh tells Joseph this dream. Joseph interprets that dream that the seven fat cows and the seven healthy uh, stalks of grain are seven years of abundance for Egypt, followed by seven years of absolute terrible famine. And then Joseph continues. He has the confidence from God to give a plan, and he says, here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. What you need to do is, for those, for, is appoint somebody, a wise uh, counselor, I mean, not giving you any suggestions, Pharaoh, but maybe the guy standing right in front of you. And for seven years, out of the abundance, you need to pull a a little bit aside so that when that seven years is complete, you have storehouses full of grain that will sustain you through the seven years of famine. Pharaoh hears that plan, hears that interpretation, and recognizes that it's the Spirit of God that Pharaoh says. It is the Spirit of God in you. It is not about Joseph. It's about God being revealed for who God is, even in the most powerful empire. And pay attention to the dreams. Way back when God gave a glimpse of his future to Joseph, in his greatest imagination, what he saw was him rising up above his family, his brothers bowing down to him, even his mother and father. That seems like a big deal, that he would be the sinner and the head of his household, even though he was the younger brother. That dream was not about that at all. The brothers heard that dream and they heard it as a threat. That Joseph was going to take their rightful place. It wasn't about that at all. In fact, the fulfillment of that dream was not about Joseph usurping the brothers. It was actually about God protecting and providing for that family and those brothers. It wasn't about Joseph rising up to be the head of his family. It wasn't even just about his family. It was about God providing and protecting his people. About God bringing his glory to the nations. About God fulfilling his plan of salvation for the world. It was so much bigger than what Joseph could have ever begun to imagine. And the same is true for you. There are glimpses and hints, hopes that you have, gifts and talents that you carry, so that there is favor that you have in different realms. Some of you are brilliant businessmen. Some of you are incredible, incredibly gifted artists. Some of you are amazing teachers. Some of you have a gift with people. Some of you have, have a, a gift with numbers. You carry something in you. But here's the thing. It's not for you. It's not about you. And maybe the greatest dream that you have for your life is that that gift that God has given you, that calling that he's placed on your life, is that you could rise up in your state, in, in your station, over the people around you. Maybe that's the biggest you've ever dreamed. That I could be promoted to the top. I could be recognized for my writing. I could, I could be celebrated as a speaker. I could, I, I could make a lot of money for my family. But what if, What if God is doing something so much bigger than what you can even begin to ask for or imagine? What if those gifts and that favor and that call is not just about you? It's not just about your family, but it's what God wants to fulfill and do through your life. But maybe to get there, you've got to go through some painful things and recognize how the hand of God is carrying you forward in the midst of pain, through the struggle, through the tragedy, so that he can form in you the character and the capacity to carry the calling that he has placed in your life. And the last, and I know this is it's a lot of chapters to go through, The last thing I want to point out is this. Notice when Pharaoh finally lifts Joseph into the fulfillment of that call. Chapter 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Joseph had a dream about his brothers bowing down to him. Never would he have imagined an entire nation bowing down to him. Pharaoh replaced the chains of imprisonment even though those chains never defined Joseph. He never saw himself as a prisoner but as a servant, and maybe that's a word for some of us. But Pharaoh replaces the chains of bondage with chains of privilege. He puts a ring on his finger, a ring, that ancient symbol of authority and belonging. You're a part of this household, and you carry my name. And what else does he give him? Remember that cloak of favor and authority that his father gave him? That was ripped to shred, became a symbol of death as he was tossed into a pit. When he's finally lifted into the place that God had imagined for him all along, Pharaoh puts on him a robe beyond anything that he could have imagined. In Revelation, uh, John actually uses this language that, he's, that he calls the, the, that the bride of Christ dressed in linen, and that linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That Joseph puts back, I mean, Pharaoh puts back on Joseph the very things that were stripped away from him, the very things that he thought he lost, the very things that were dead, God restored. What does he want to do for you? So I want to pray for us. This week, as we set it aside for prayer, and if you want to continue in the prayer stations, you're welcome to it. We have communion in the four corners of the room. But this week for us has been a a, a space to just reset our minds on the things of God, for him to reframe our story, to give us a glimpse of what he has in store for us this year. And my prayer is that the grace of God would carry you through the trials and the pains that are inevitable in this life that you could see his hand at work shaping and forming you. As Philippians said, that he who began a good work in us will carry it out until the day of completion. He's carrying out his work in you. So, Father, I ask, will you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the ways that you have been faithfully at work in our lives, in both The best times and the worst times, and the celebrations and the tragedies. And God, that in it all, you're carrying out your purposes, your plans for us and for this world. So, Lord, will you give us faith to keep turning our hearts and our minds to you? We need you, Jesus. Will you help us find our story in this greater story? In your name.